As I said last week, this is more of a systematic look at a certain theme instead of a expository work through a particular book of the Bible. Uh, so, but I always want to kind of set it up with at least one of the main scriptures, and really, uh, and we'll look at this a little bit more in the middle of the sermon, but uh, chapter 12 of Romans kind of sums up uh, m- most of what uh, the theme of what today's sermon's about. Uh, Romans is a wonderful book. If you want a good systematic theology, uh, there's a lot of other good ones out there too, but Romans is a good start. That's uh, Paul's systematic theology of the, of the New Covenant. And for 11 chapters, he's been talking about the mercies of God, and so he kind of sums it up here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that kind of sets to this transformation by the Spirit in our minds, uh, and we'll look at that a little more uh, as we get through. Last week, we kind of introduced the idea of what a worldview is, and that's not really too complicated that the definition's kind of in the term, it's how you view the world. Uh, but we also kind of, the, the way we looked at uh, what a biblical worldview is, uh, as being thinking like Jesus, uh, and what this is kind of the second part of the introduction to what we're going to look at for the next 10 weeks. Thinking like Jesus is a matter of obedience. Uh, it's always a matter of obedience. Uh, and I think we miss that. You, you think about the Great Commission. We're supposed to make disciples. It says that. But it also says teaching them to observe, observe, to keep, uh, to guard, to obey all that I have commanded you. You know, we... We often miss that in the Great Commission. Yes, we're supposed to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what are we supposed to do after that? That takes five minutes, right? That'd be a long time to be under the water, though. Less, maybe less than that. Uh, the big thing is, te- which is not teaching them to get baptized is part of it. I, I realize that. And it takes some time to teach people before they'll believe. You want to make sure they are making a commitment to the real Jesus, not some sort of uh, get-out-of-hell-free Jesus um, that's out there today uh, as, as charity prayed, a cheap grace idea. So really, it's more about training than it is about teaching. Uh, you know, I know we have a lot of teachers in our, uh, in our midst and in, in our congregation. <clears throat> and yes, we teach. Uh, teach... Uh, is what we do, which is imparting knowledge. And that's very good. But training is really has an object. What are we training for? Uh, and I think that's what Jesus wants. He wants, he wants training. And, and training is so you can apply it. You know, you can learn everything in the Bible and know it. But if you don't apply it, it's, it's not going to be helpful. That's not a disciple. That's just a smart guy that knows some stuff. Um, we had a lot of smart people in the New Testament that didn't follow Jesus. I assume Judas was probably the top 10% of his graduating class. Smart doesn't mean you're trained, you're doing what he said. Be doers of the word, as we talked about at the children. So a definition of training, ironically, could be teaching them to obey, <laughs> which is exactly what the Great Commission says. So how God instructs us to learn a biblical worldview and be trained to use it. These are eight things to think about. Uh, 
You don't have to memorize these, uh, it, but they're helpful in getting how do we, what is it that I can do? What is it that I can do as a response to following Jesus and what he's done for me? Uh, how can I be obedient? Uh, so the first one is developing godly wisdom. Uh, <clears throat> you don't have to raise your hand, but anybody think that would be helpful in our day and age? We can't even get normal wisdom, let alone godly wisdom. Uh, if you look back in Proverbs 2, which, you know, there's a reason they call this wisdom literature. Uh, you can get smarter by reading these. You can get closer to Yahweh if you do them. <laughs> Same thing. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright he is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of the saints or the godly ones, anybody who, who follows Yahweh. So basically, what is wisdom? Well, this is, I boiled it down. I think this makes some sense. It could, it could certainly be defined differently. Wisdom is the art of forming the correct plan to gain the desired results. It's what do you, you know, you came to worship today. Why? You, you took the communion. Why? Uh, you, you study the word. Why? You serve the church. Why? You honor Christ as Lord. Why? You know, it's again, wisdom tells you all that. What am I, what is this response of mine? Uh, gaining others, uh, gaining God or pleasing God and obviously uh, helping yourself. And the other thing yet, godly wisdom is not merely intellectual, but is moral at its core. I don't know if you knew this, but wisdom, when you see it here, it's the upright, it's the righteous. The word fool in the Old Testament always has a moral quality to it. It's not just somebody, and I'm trying to use that other word, that is dull, that doesn't think things through. It's a person who is wicked. And so a wise person is one who is righteous. You know, it's the idea of following what Yahweh said. That's godly wisdom. Its goal is to honor and please God as one, as you decide and as you act. You know, we all do that. We talked about a lot of people don't know they have a worldview, but you still make decisions based on something. Uh, most, most people's worldview, if, if the Bible is right, is what we call hedonism, doing whatever it is that makes me happy and pleases me. And that's not all bad until you find out, as we talked about already in the songs we sung, you can't save yourself. So pleasing yourself, it just, it, you, you're, you're at odds with what reality comes in. So godly wisdom has following God and, and a moral quality to it. In First in Kings, and you probably know this account, the kids probably even know it. Do you, you remember what Solomon asked for when God could say he could have anything he wanted? And we usually say wisdom, don't we? And he did. But I want you to notice this verse does not have that word in it. But it does give you a definition of what it is. This is godly wisdom. Solomon said, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. That's a really good definition of godly wisdom. That I may discern good and evil, which implies something, doesn't it? That there is an objective standard and it's not from us. It doesn't come from society. That's just mob rule. It doesn't come from within my heart, looking in and searching my feelings. It comes from God revealing himself and telling us 
what it is is moral and what it is is wicked. And so that's what he had. May I be able to discern between good and evil, which is exactly what Romans 12 is saying. This is wisdom. The word wisdom is not in there, is it? But it's implied. For who is able to govern this year great people? The problem with Solomon is he, he might have been a wise guy, but he didn't use it. I mean, I'll just say one thing about Solomon, and the rest of you should be able to fill in the blanks of what the problem is. This dude had over 300 wives and concubines. Wise? Moral? Just because you're given wisdom doesn't mean you're going to use it, right? And Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus kind of, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You can't have one without the other. Because you're not in the kingdom of God unless it's Romans 3 and we become his righteousness. We get his perfect life and he takes away our sins and obliterates it. So we have to have both. You, got, you can't get into the kingdom without being righteous in the Father's eyes. And that only comes through grace. And then all these things will be added to you. It's like we were second at the focus on God. The rest will take care of itself. And think about this. You should want Jesus. Want Jesus. Follow Jesus. And the rest of it will take care of itself. That's kind of what this is saying. Because no one comes to the kingdom of God but through him, right? Get him, all the rest will take care of itself. That's exactly what this is saying, isn't it? What we tend to do is want what he can give us. And that's not all bad. I want eternal life. I want the comfort of the spirit. I want the fellowship of other Christians. And I think eternal life is a heck of a fringe benefit. But you get that if you just follow Jesus. You know, if you aim for heaven, you may or may not get it. But if you aim for Jesus, you'll get heaven thrown in. That's C.S. Lewis. It really sounded cool, didn't it? It's like, well, we should write this down, Pastor Brian. Well, that's actually C.S. Lewis. But it's very wise. So that's the first one. Number two is don't be fooled. This is a problem. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Doesn't mean all philosophy is bad, but the empty parts are. According to human tradition that would be against God, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And this is a big problem now, isn't it? In our, in our culture, there's many seductive alternatives awaiting us. You think about it, if you, I, I don't know if this would work, but if you had, like if we had a, a, a parallel sanctuary over here, and then w one person, hopefully me, is over here preaching about that you need to give your life up, be transformed, put others in Christ first, and accept the costly grace to follow a life of obedience. And they say, if anybody wants to do that, come up here, and then you're like, eh. and I hope people are like, well, I think this one through a little bit, and you should. Another one of the parables of Jesus is the man, what person doesn't first figure out if they can afford to build the house before they build it? Do you, do you want to count, count the cost? Do you realize what Jesus is asking you? Everything is now mine. Everything you have, you filter it through me. And then on another sanctuary, it might say, you come here, we'll all give you a new car. You follow Jesus and you'll have everything you ever needed. I'm guessing, I'm just an outside guess, but there are probably more people go forward in the other sanctuary. And it's seductive. You know, you think about it. Temptation isn't tempting unless it's seductive, right? I mean, I've never been tempted to eat too much liver. Maybe you have. Maybe my dad has. He likes liver. I don't get that. But 
I've never been tempted. And you think about it, we don't know exactly. I don't know if you knew the, the, the word hapar is that kind of gets into apple, and that's what we call the thing that, that Eve and Adam, but it's just the fruit. But think about it, if, if the nakash, you know, the Satan comes and says, look at this lard. Look at this raw liver. Look at these maggots. Isn't it enticing? You know, but you look in, in Genesis 3, it says she looked at the fruit and it was pleasing to the eye and smell. Temptation's always pleasing. You know, you know, Satan doesn't, you know, Jesus gets to go in the wilderness and Satan comes to him. What does he say? He doesn't say, follow me, I'll beat you up and then follow me. No, he's giving him things that are enticing. You know, obviously he has a little bit of a uh, low Christology, I think. Satan didn't know what he was talking about there. But it's always, there's always alternatives out there. And again, if you focus on Jesus, there's going to be times that you do things that you probably would rather not do, and there's things that you won't do that maybe we rather would do. But the key is, we had that in the song, you know, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The, the, the key, and it happens to all of you sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't happen all the time, when the things that God wants, we desire. That is a good place to be. And if you're not there, and you struggle with particular problems or sins, say, I would just say, Lord, help me desire the things that you want, and not the things that I want, especially if they're against you. So they always come in these, you know, these evil things always come in attractive packaging. This has nothing to do with it. The joy boxes are attractive, but they're also good. We must be carefully consider each option and reject those that do not conform to God's ways. And we'll look at number five. How does one do that? <clears throat> Being dull is not in the program. Commit to what's important. If you go back, this is called the Shema. Uh, we had to learn this and. Hebrew, Shema, Israel, Elanay, Ohino, I just spit in the cup, so I'm glad we're done. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is the great Deuteronomy 6, Shema, you know, hero Israel. Jesus kind of sums it up this way in John 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So this is a misnomer in evangelical Christianity. I've read through the Bible a number of times. I'm sure a number of you had. I can't find that loophole that says just kind of get what you need and don't worry about the rest. Get, you know, what do we want from God? You want comfort, or you some comfort, but don't worry about following Jesus. That's not in there. That's not discipleship. Developing and using a biblical worldview takes time. It takes energy. It takes diligence. It takes reliance on God's words, and it is a lifelong process. If you come to the Bible to know God and what he wants from you, that will take forever because it's a relationship. You'll be, I, I'm guessing we'll do Bible study in heaven because the word is living and active. Um, maybe easier, we might have less questions, 
We don't get those silly why questions. Why did God do it? That probably won't come up much, will it? Because we'll probably know. But I think it's a lifeline that, that we miss that, don't we? And I think that kind of comes into number four, being continually transformed. We get this from Romans 12. You know, becoming a disciple, we've talked about different ways to enunciate that one that people have liked, and I like it too. It's the three G's. It's that you realize that you're guilty. So you accept the grace and you live a life of gratitude. So it's guilt, grace, gratitude. Another one that I like, and this is kind of in the Gospels, especially in the, in the Gospel of Mark, you kind of see this. You see this insight. When it, I mean, they, they look at Jesus and there's something about him. You remember even the, the guys come to arrest him and they're like, well, he just was, it was really cool what he was saying. They couldn't do it. So there's an insight. There's something about him that's appealing and his words. But you have to have the next one, turning. This is the repentance part. You have insight. I, I understand him. I'm starting to understand what he's demanding of me. And then I turn away from sin and turn toward Christ. That's the turning. That's the repentance. And then there's transformation. You know, Paul says you become a new creation. But we miss it if we don't understand that the transform by the renewal of our mind is an ongoing thing. Yes, there's that regeneration at first, but listen to the rest of you. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, which is another definition of godly wisdom. How do you know if what you're supposed to do in any given situation? How do you discern good from evil? The main way to do that is to know what the Word says. I'm not talking about what to eat for lunch. That's not a moral choice, right? I don't know. Eat whatever you want, I guess, whatever you can afford. We're talking about how do I treat people? How do I respond to God? How do I see the world through God's eyes? This is a continual reminder. So you think about it. When you come to Christ, when you do that turning and you get that initial transformation, you want God to change you so you sin less, right? Anybody want to send more? I mean, isn't that part of it? And, and it's wonderful that when we mess up, the grace still covers. I realize that. But God also wants us to trust Him, which will result in us sinning less. And I think the problem is our focus too often is not on Yahweh and His Word, but it's on our transformation. Our transformation of the first time that adds wonderful. And I hope you can tell people, yeah, I was, you know, a, whatever word you was a schmuck of some sort. And I finally realized that I was guilty before a holy God. And I just throw myself on the mercy of the cross. And now I know the Spirit's with me. And I, now I struggle with sin and try to do better. But don't just focus on that. Focus on trusting God. Because really, if you just focus on your transformation, it's rooted in you. Focus on Him, it's rooted in Christ. It really comes down to this, and it's, it's really not that hard. I mean, it's in the Bible all over the place. The means, it means we're not justified, we're not only justified by faith, we're also sanctified by faith. It's our trust in God that allows us to be able to live a life through that's worthy of the calling. So really, if you think about it, the only real change you'll ever experience in your life is if you allow Jesus to increasingly live His life through you, and that's through the power of the Spirit. And this is ultimately a trust issue, a faith issue. And how do you do it? 
I was going to give you a new thing, but the new things don't work. New things are wonderful, but uh, the old things always work best. Study, worship, prayer, service. Tried and true things. But that's the thing, focusing on Jesus. You know, I've said this before. You're all in worship today. Um, you're all very attentive, I think. Nobody's asleep yet. Um, what are the chances if, of you sinning over and against if you didn't come to worship today? I think the probability of not sinning is higher in here. I mean, it is because you're just closer to God. Well, what if we could do that more in our individual lives? Well, how do you do that? I find it hard to sin when I read the Bible. No matter how hard I want to <laughs> not read the Bible, sin. It's just hard because it's like, I know he already's looking, but boy, you really know he's looking when you're reading the Bible. It's tough to sin when you pray. It's tough to sin when you worship. It's tough to sin when you're doing what God wants with the gifts that you've given in the local church. It's almost just a practical issue, but it is really a heart issue too, isn't it? And 2 Corinthians put this really well. It's kind of the same way that Romans is putting it. So we do not lose heart. I think he's talking about people there that are struggling. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Every day. Every day God is helping us. Every day transforming us. You know, and the prayer always, isn't it, that in our Christian life that will trend up? Um, I hope you can, if you've been a Christian for a long time, hope you can look back 20 years and say, you know, I don't struggle with that anymore. I got new ones. You know what Israel means? Anybody? You know, Jacob, remember when he got that name? What was he doing? He was wrestling. With maybe Jesus. I don't know, you can read that text. It's by the word of Jabbok. And I got to go there. And I'm like, boy, the boyer looks big compared to this. Look like runoff to me, but whatever. You know, it seems so big in the Bible, but it's not. The Jordan River is that way too. If you get a good run, you can jump out right over top of it. Um, but he's struck, and he says, "I've struggled with God, and lived." And then he called him Israel. That's what Israel means: striving and struggling with God. So you think about. It. I've seen people. You know, they say, "Well, I'm struggling with sin." I'm like, "Good." It's when you give in to it and don't struggle. That's the problem. Do you feel guilty when you sin? Well, if you do, then you're struggling. Let's, let's, I'm not saying it's good that you give in. That's not the point. But when you get to the point where you don't care anymore, you just sin and it's like, who cares? Well, God cares. It's a struggle. Continually renewed by day by day. And yes, there's spiritual insight and there's mountaintop experiences and there's wonderful relationships and those are great. But don't stop doing those things that are tried and true. God didn't write all this down so we would never read it and never study it. Fight with the right tools. Yelling usually isn't a good one. I've heard people say, uh, somebody said, well, Jesus yelled. And you know, can say the same thing all the time. You ain't Jesus. He could handle his anger better than I can. I doubt Jesus ever got mad at a football game. He might have got disgusted with the play, especially if he was a Bears fan. But, I mean, he didn't sin in his anger. His anger was righteous and holy. 
But 2 Corinthians 10 gives us, this is a spiritual battle. For though we walk in the flesh, in the fallen nature, we are not waging war according to that fallen nature. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's how you fight. How did, we had it last week. How did Jesus fight off the temptations of Satan? It is written. It is written. It is written. If you know it's written, it's a lot easier to fight it off because it's a combination of the word and the Spirit who authored the Word and helps us in our weakness. And these Ephesians, people say, you know, the Ephesians 6 armor, you know, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, all that stuff. Really good stuff. Great. I got to get some cool pictures of that um, and statues and stuff. But, you know, I've heard somebody say, well, I put that on every morning. And I'm like, well, what do you do at night? What if you get tempted at night? This is, this is a metaphor, I realize, but you're supposed to put it on when you're a Christian. You're never supposed to take this stuff off. Well, I've got faith during the day, but at night I'm going to put it over here on my nightstand. You know, it's the idea of that battle that goes on all the time. So it's, you know, to put it on and leave it on. But that's the idea. You fight this kingdoms of the world with the word. Jesus did it all the time. Haven't you read? He <laughs> says many times to the leaders. Number six, rely on God's guidance. This is, this is key. You see this in Proverbs 3. You probably hear it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your straight your paths. It's a really cool proverb. You probably heard Psalm 119, 105. Amy Grant made this famous in her. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, this is the, when the spirit of truth comes, Jesus said, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. What the Holy Spirit does for us is guides us to the word and guides us to Yahweh. There's a combination there. He reminds us of who Jesus is. And if we go through the tough times that we talked about with the kids and the rain's coming and the storms are coming and the wind's battering against our life, the Spirit will come and comfort us. How? Everything's going to be okay? Well, in, in some ways, but no matter what happens, I'm not leaving you. The foundation's not going away. Jesus' resurrection is just as real through the storms as it is through the good times of life. That's what he reminds us of. And so it's that combination. That's, no other book does this. It's the written word of God that we understand and the spirit in our hearts that has access to the Father and the Son that changes and then focuses on what it means and how we apply it. And then Galatians 5, it's the same thing. What does it mean to walk in the spirit, to walk in the Lord? It's the same, obedience. But I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then we get a lot of fleshy bad things, and eventually in, in verse 22 and 23, you get what the fruit of the Spirit are, love, peace, joy, patience, endurance, you know, all those wonderful things, even joy, that we have. So the key is obediently relying, relying on Yahweh's understanding, not your own. I mean, it, it just makes me cringe. You see this, you see this even in churches. Well, I know the Bible says that, but I don't like that, so I'm going to go do this. I'm like, who the heck are you? I mean, that's, that's, and you know, that's 
that's bad enough outside the church. But when you hear that inside the church, it's like, so you've got a smorgasbord theology? It's like, well, I like that one. I like the eternal life thing, but this obedience stuff is not going a little far. You don't get to decide that. Yahweh's understanding. Not your own, no matter how much you want it to be your own. Get fit spiritually. I like this. We've got 2 Timothy 3 here. All scripture is God-breathed. We know this one. And it's profitable for what? Well, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Why? Well, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what you were created for. Did you know that? You created in Christ to do good things for him. Not because the good things save you, but because now you're part of the family and it should look like it. As John the Baptist says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then 1 Timothy 4. This is a really good one, I think, especially in our day and age. Have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he's saying, you know, physical fitness is great, but spiritual fitness is much more important. You think about it. Your body right now and your soul, which one is eternal? That's what you have to think. I had trouble finding statistics for this, and that bugs me when I can't find statistics. But the thing I could come up, it looks like that Christians spend about 25 more times on physical training and nutrition than they do on spiritual training in our country, culture right now. And again, notice what he says. You know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Physical training is good. It is. It's good. It's, it's, we are a body-soul combination. But it's again, what is eternal? You know, we all know this, right? I don't know if you knew this, but this is biblical. We're all going to die. Your body is going to die, but your soul lives on. And eventually you get a new body in a new heaven, in a new earth with that same soul in ways that we can only just start to, to wonder about. But think about that. You know, maybe every minute, every hour you spend in physical training, maybe you spend the some, same in spiritual training. Because eventually the first one's not going to matter that much. The second one's going to matter a lot. And you're all saying, well, maybe I should spend a little bit more time with the physical. Yeah, we're working on it, you know. That's why I have a dog, so I can walk. You know, that's the, the fun thing. Uh, but both. I think, you know, again, don't, don't think this is, 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 a, is a, a physical training is a bad thing. And finally, the last one is fear God. We kind of miss this, but in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, fools are people not only who are dull, but people who are immoral and unrighteous. And Jesus puts it pretty solidly. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, which is pretty much everybody. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's kind of your hellfire and brimstone part of the sermon, if you were wanting that. Well, what does it mean to fear God? Recognizing that he and he alone holds your life in his hands. He is holy. He is to be object of our worship, our reverence, and our awe. And that same God we fear is the one that came in the person of Jesus Christ and said, I love you so much, I'm going to die for you if you just want to accept that. That's who we fear. So what happens when you have a relationship with Jesus, you no longer fear him as a judge, but you want to respect him as a father. And that's a big difference, isn't it? You know, so we don't have any Yahweh phobia 
We don't have to have that if we know Jesus. So, conclusion. Possessing a biblical worldview should be the consequence of your decision to trust Jesus Christ for your salvation. That's part of the package. The most important decision that you will ever make is how to respond to Jesus Christ's death and resurrection in relation to your own mortality. You know, following him. But think about this. The second most important decision you'll make relates to how you'll live in light of your first decision. And this will reveal how real the first decision really is on how you act and how you think. Let us pray. Fathers, we go through these many tests about wisdom and the battle that we have. We know that you've given us the tools to fight. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us a church. You've given us an image of you in our hearts. May we have a desire to do those things that honor you, that are wise in your eyes. May we use those tools. May we have a desire and hunger for your word so we can know you better and serve you well. Amen.